0: I, I will. I will tell. A, I, so I will tell a great anecdote. Kind of he told me this this story um, himself. Um, so uh, in the 1950s, James Wong Howe, mm-hmm. who was the you know brilliant cinematographer of, of Sweet Smell of Success and, and dozens of amazing Hollywood movies over the years, one, of, one of the, the best. The, the, yeah was one of the greatest cinematographers of all time decided that he was going to open a, a restaurant in Los Angeles and that was a that was a thing at one point among um people in the industry like preston sturgis had a restaurant like if like for some reason if you were in the the film business you also wanted to have your own restaurant i guess it was like all your friends could come by and celebrities could be seen so um, he opened this restaurant in, I think it might have been in the Valley. Uh, I think it was called Jimmy Wong House. Uh, I won't swear to that, but I think it was. And he got um, a, a journalist and a photographer to come out and cover the opening and uh, you know, for a puff piece, and the journalist was asking him questions about it and his career. And the photographer was kind of on his knees trying to get, a photo of um, the the front of the restaurant and James Wong Howe, and and he couldn't quite manage to get it all in the frame. And Howe saw that he was struggling and said, "Hey, you know, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I think if you use a a wider fisheye lens, uh, you'll be able to get me." And and the photographer snapped at him, "Hey, you stick to your cooking. <laughs> Let me do the photography." <laughs> <laughs> That's that's great. Curtis roared with (laughs) laughter. He literally almost fell out of his chair at dinner.
1: That's great. That's great. That's
0: fantastic. I'll I'll do this.
1: I I lived in the valley. If only I could have ate at the, uh, Howe, uh, restaurant or the Preston Sturges. I, um, I guess probably short lived because his film career ended pretty abruptly. And, but anyway, Dennis and Craig, uh, from Deaf Crocodile on the show. Welcome, gentlemen.
0: Hey, pleasure to meet you both. Thanks yeah. for having
1: us. And Jill, my co-host. I don't know if you hey. are fam- welcome again, Jill. Um, hey, how are you doing, Aaron? I'm good. I'm actually. I I feel bad saying this because I'm talking to two West Coast people, but I'm groggy. <laughs> I slept great. I slept too great. Um,
0: it is after and it's afternoon for you. I know it's pathetic. On the East Coast. Yeah. Thanks for getting up early for us. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Uh,
0: no, we uh, well, I wake up. Usually by six AM, we have a, a hundred pound husky oh, wow. that starts to get uh, antsy around five forty five six AM every day. So, so we wake up pretty <laughs> early here. <laughs> and you are both in L A. Uh, yes, I am actually out in the Valley. I am in Van Nuys, and, and okay. Craig Lee lives over on the, the West Side.
1: I lived in North Hollywood, so close to Van Nuys, and um,
0: if you... oh yeah, we were old neighbors.
1: Yeah, I lived in uh, Magnolia and Lancashire, right on, right by the Emmy building. I don't know if it's still the Emmy building, but it was fun.
0: I'm, I know exactly where that is. Uh, I'm close to Sherman Way and Woodman.
1: Nice. Yeah. I remember one day I looked out the window and there were the Sopranos. <laughs> uh, that was, that was a, so that, that dates me a little bit, but.
0: Well, our, our, uh, bizarre, uh, L.A. claim to fame is that the Ralphs, which is right at the Mm -hmm. corner of Sherman Way and Woodman, was apparently where the Manson clan used to do their dumpster diving.
1: Oh, (laughs)
3: nice.
0: Right, Because the the Spawn Ranch was out Mm -hmm. in Chatsworth, Mm -hmm. further out in the valley. But apparently they used to come to this Ralphs. And one of our neighbors, who lives right around the corner, has lived in this neighborhood since the mid-60s. And um, there used to be a a baseball field behind his house. It's now a a auto graveyard, a pick-apart place. But in the late 60s, it was a a, uh, baseball field, and he was actually the coach. His kids were, like, in Little League. So he used to go open up the – they had a little, like, shack where they would keep their equipment and the bases and the the machine to draw the lines. So he went in there one morning to open it up, and he saw – a half dozen dirty hippie faces peering out at him.
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh.
0: And he kind of jumped back and he said it was a bunch of young men and women. And they said, Oh no, we're really, really sorry. You know, we we just needed a (laughs) place to sleep. And, uh, um, he said, no, no, that's that's fine. As long as you don't steal anything. And they kind of all shuffled out and he mentioned it a few days later to a cop that lived across the street. And the cop said, Oh yeah, those are those Manson kids. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. wow wow and they're always stealing stuff from the dumpsters at ralph's and of course this was before the the tate lobianco killings right right yeah so he actually ran into the the, the manson family um in the in the little baseball shack in like probably 68 69 so. wow
1: crazy reminds me of a tarantino movie i saw once but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> you know i i have to say that one of the The weird things in L.A. is that I have met at least a half dozen people in my almost 30 years living here in L.A. that swear on a stack of Bibles that they were supposed to be at the house on Los Cielo Drive Hmm. the night of the the Sharon Tate killings. Wow. And that something prevented them or that they had been invited. And, you know, clearly – not all of those people or maybe none of them are actually remembering it clearly, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it, it, it is a, um, it's a strange kind of mass delusion, I guess you would say,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, that they're like, Oh yeah, yeah. I was friends with, with, uh, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate and they, you know, she'd invited me over that night, but I couldn't make it. and I would have been killed. And I've heard that same story. <laughs> Almost exactly a half dozen times over three decades.
1: Well, Dennis, now that you mention it, I was actually invited to that house. <laughs> so,
0: see? It's, just,
1: it's... it's pretty dark. I shouldn't make light of it. It's like the Sex Pistols oh, show, show that 10 people were, showed up and 100 people say they showed up. Uh, uh, anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like no, no, everybody – Everybody's okay. saying that they slept with Marilyn Monroe too. You know, like Jill,
1: I slept with Marilyn Monroe <laughs> in a past
0: life.
2: No, it's everybody it, it's- has a story about her. Oh, I got with her before before she was famous. Mm-hmm. You know, well,
0: yeah, uh, I, I did. Um, again, I don't know why I'm just riffing on on bizarre Hollywood encounters, <laughs> but years ago, I was at a um, I was at a wedding anniversary party um, thrown for um, uh, Dick Fleischer who was the Mm -hmm. director of The Narrow Margin and Fantastic Voyage and *Ted Rillington Place and Mm. Boston Strangler. Wonderful, wonderful filmmaker. He and his wife had been married, I think, 60 years. It was amazing. And it was one of those fantastic parties. Phyllis Diller was there with a man that was like 35 years her junior as her date. And I wound up talking to <laughs> an older gentleman who was a physician. And it turns out that he had been one of Marilyn Monroe's doctors in the late fifties and early sixties and had been among the last people to see, uh, Richard Farina. I don't know. Do you guys know who Richard yes. Farina were? Well, he was with them and it was, it was a book party thrown somewhere in northern california for the release of richard farina's book been down so long it looks like up to me which is a famous yeah. kind of counterculture book and richard farina got on a motorcycle and drove off you know kind of in celebration and he was immediately killed oh, so wow. this guy who who happened also to be marilyn monroe's doctor had had also been close friends with Richard and Baymer Farina. Why I remember that, I don't know, but it was just a crazy party. Phyllis Diller and her young boyfriend and Marilyn Monroe's doctor. So,
1: Wow. L.A.? <laughs> this, <laughs> yeah.
0: this is why I love living in L.A.
1: Yeah. That, the one thing I remember about living in L.A., you, you see a celebrity every day and and it's no big deal. Um, and you don't bother him. In fact, Jill and I have talked about uh, our my encounter with Adam Sandler when we went back to L.A. And uh, my wife was like, I was like, leave them alone. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Well, not like that, but um, but she's like, yeah, yeah. My
2: uh, my best friend lives in LA, so I go out there. Well, pre COVID, I'd go right, out there about right. two times a year, and you know, always they live uh, in you know, Fairfax area, right off Beverly, and so that's just you know, celeb haven, constantly mm-hmm. seeing people walk around, and you just leave them alone. But there's a, I mean, you you know throw a throw a dart and you hit a celeb yeah
1: the- you go to, go to a random <laughs> restaurant yeah so um anyway yeah, we, we were yeah oh, anyway
2: sorry. so also no, craig, no, no. craig
1: is here we haven't heard craig yet
2: craig
1: i'm, I'm generally <laughs> you're quite generally yeah well dennis is spitting fire so i think think you can balance each other out um love to so this is criterion now uh episode 133 and uh, glad to have the co-founders of Deaf Crocodile. Uh, you're doing some great things already right out of the gate. Got two films in at uh, New York Film Festival. Is that correct?
3: Uh, well, we've got – there's two films I restored at the New York Film Festival. Gotcha. Um, the last thing I did for Arbalos before I left Arbalos, um, I restored uh, Chameleon Street.
1: Oh, nice. Um,
3: that's playing there. And then, uh, I also, uh, just finished the restra- restoration on, uh, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. And that restoration is premiering there as well. Um, but uh, we just did the restoration the Deaf Crocodile's not, not distributing it.
1: Oh, you're not. Okay. Um, wow. A- that, what a great start though. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a fun first film to, uh, to work on. So you, Dev crocodile did the restoration but the distribution is elsewhere
0: yeah we had we had talked with the the rights holder who's who's been a very good friend of mine for many years and in fact executive produced a, a supernatural thriller that i directed in ireland a couple of years ago called nails and he's produced several other films as well um and we had initially talked with him about doing the restoration and the distribution, and we realized that it would be better if we just focused on, on the 4K restoration. So mm-hmm. he's talking with another, you know, very well known kind of art house archival distribution company that's great. And I think they're going to be taking it out, um, for him. And then I believe Shout Factory has the, the home video and the digital rights. So at some point they'll be doing a 4k release based on Craig's restoration.
1: Nice. Nice. Ooh, exciting. I hey, watched yeah. that this year, actually uh, the, 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 the original, of course, the carpenter version. And um, yeah, what a, what a fun film. I mean, yeah, uh, just, just, a, just a, a ride, literally a ride.
0: <laughs> well, well, Craig, maybe you want to talk about the, um, the toughest part of the restoration, which was repairing the, the damaged footage. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. I mean,
0: for the most part,
3: most of the, the restoration of that film was was fairly straightforward. Um, it just hadn't really been done at a, at a really high level before, so it's, when people see it, it's pretty incredible. It's, the, the Blu-ray that's out there now is uh, not great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the new, the new, fantastic. But the the, the key issue with the film was real 4. For whatever reason when the film first came out and they were making release prints, the lab was making was printing those release prints from the original negative. Um, for whatever reason they didn't make an IP uh, and an IN uh, to do the release prints. And at some point they tore the head of Real 4. Right down the middle. Um, oh, wow! Just bring the negative, and there was no backup.
2: <laughs> oh geez.
3: Um, so pretty much since the film came out, other than those first release prints that were made from that negative, they had to make a like a duplicate negative from a release print. Um, which, if you've seen the film, the, it's the it's, it's kind of when they're, they're, when they just take, uh, when she goes and take, gets Napoleon out of the prison, mm-hmm. out of the cell.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That, that section gets really muddy. It's, it's soft. The grain, the grain is huge. The color's kind of a little flat. It just doesn't, it doesn't look that great. And that's why. Um, so we were trying to think of different, what, what could we possibly do, uh, to try and make that look better? And we tracked down one of those original prints, um, that was printed from the negative. And we thought, well, that would, if we scanned that, that would at least be better, um, than what, what people have been using. But the print was completely faded red. There was no color left in it at all. It was just basically red.
1: <laughs> wow.
3: Um, but the resolution was much, much better because it was a print from the original negative. Um, so I kicked around the idea. I'm like, well, what if we were able to take that scan, remove all the color. So it's just a black and white, uh, image, and then apply the color from the dupe to that. Um, not knowing if that's even possible. So I, I contacted our, our colorist, uh, Tyler Fagerstrom, who uh, does amazing work for us, huh. and pitched this idea to him. And he, was, he said, you know what? I actually thought that too, and he was already working on it. Um, so great minds think alike. Nice. And uh, it took some doing because um, there was some – Ghosting issues because they're you know the print and and the uh, the dupe weren't exactly the same like size and shape and and whatnot. Um, so he got it as, as best he could, and then gave me that. And so then I looked at it, and it and the resolution was good, and the color was pretty good, and it, it created a, a this weird kind of red speckle artifact though that was still there. Um, and I was able to use a a degraining technique to get that red out and give it back to Tyler. He tweaked the color because Dad had 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 uh, adjusted the color when I took those all that red grain out. Um, and now it looks pretty amazing. Um, wow. I was I was really happy with how it turned out. And when we screened it for for Joe, the the uh, executive producer um he was also blown away he's like it's he's like it's never looked like that (laughs) it's like it's 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 like it's uh it's like nothing ever happened to real four so we're pretty happy with that um which is it's kind of funny because it was a huge amount of work and it was you know the kind of a, a. kind of cool innovative technique to do it and in the end no one's going to notice <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: <probably. laughs> it, it wasn't a bad print um like compared to other 70s films i've seen some terrible prints um and you know i i said carpenter but it was actually Joseph Sargent that directed that and i, I remember because i taken a 70s class and he came up for buck and the preacher which i believe he was fired and replaced uh yeah actually poitier fired him i think um but yeah, no. Looking forward to that. Do you know if you if you can't say don't don't say please? But um, any idea when we'll expect to get that on a home video from Shout? I, I, I don't
0: I don't know when um, uh, Shout Factory is planning to to release um, the new restoration. That's really up to them and the uh, mm-hmm. the rights holder uh, uh, Joseph Kaufman, who who I have to say. Is the one that has been um, uh, financing and sort of spearheading the restoration. So he he provided the the original print um, that Craig was referencing that we used for the scan to try and replace the missing footage. And he's been the kind of steward and shepherd for the film um, this all these all these years. So so Joe deserves a great huge.
3: Definitely, yeah, his his baby. Baby. Yeah, and
0: it, it is not a a, uh, a a cheap or a quick process to do a 4K restoration from scratch mm-hmm. um, from the original camera negative. I, I do you know when somebody says we're doing a 4K restoration? Do, do you and your listeners kind of know mostly what that process is?
1: I would say. Our listeners are pretty sophisticated, um, and we have some idea. I, as far as I heard, I, if I recall, I think I heard it's about 200 K for just the scan. Uh, but if you want to go, you know, kind of talk about at a high well, Craig, level.
0: Yeah. Craig, Craig can, cause he's our sort of technical um, gu- guru. He can, can tell you what the process is. Um, when you actually go back to the camera negative and the original sound elements to do a, a, A 4k or a 2k restoration
1: i want to hear that but but if you don't mind can you just kind of tell us what so you you both worked on arbalos with arbalos films did a lot of great work uh like heroic work Um, i just think film restoration is just such a we're at like a golden age i think i hope you agree Mm -hmm. and now you're in you're you have founded co-founded uh dev crocodile together so is this primarily just restorations and not distribution or what is your vision for this company
3: well, no, no. We, we're going to be essentially the, the, the same where we're going to be restoring films that we distribute, um, as well as, you know, being able to, to do restoration work for, for other people that were, for films that we're not distributing. Um, it's just the, the type of films we're doing will probably be a little different than what we did with Arbalos. Um, then, well, we then start-
0: yeah, we started out, um, as, as colleagues and coworkers at Sinalicious, um, mm-hmm. Picks. So I, I, had co-founded that distribution, uh, company in 2014, um, uh, with a guy named Paul Corver, uh, who was, who was the president of the parent company, Sinalicious Inc., that Craig worked for. And, and that was a post-production and scanning and film restoration and color grading, um, house here. And then Paul had the idea to kind of branch out into distribution, and and we launched that division, and we're able to use the in-house kind of technical know-how and equipment, um, and and we put out kind of half the films we put out were were new movies, either indie or world titles like Gangs of Wasaipur, Josephine Decker's first two movies, that was Mild and Lovely and Butter on the Latch, but then we also did. Some very cool, kind of unknown, um, off-the-radar films, like We we Restored In-House, um, uh, Eiji Yamamoto's Belladonna of Sadness, Toshio Matsumoto's Funeral Parade of Roses, uh, Leslie Stevens' Private Property, which was a, a lost kind of California neo-noir that was Warren Oates' first film performance. Um, wow. And UCLA Archive had had rediscovered the only known film elements on it, and we worked with them. Um, and these were all projects that, that Craig oversaw uh, on the restoration end. And then um, there were internal problems, unfortunately, with the parent company, Sinalicious, and the wheels started to come off. And so with two other colleagues, we started Arbelos in 2017, which focus primarily on on restoring and releasing older titles, which we dearly love, but we also love new movies, mm-hmm. world cinema, independent film, all sorts of you know different genres. Um, you know, I come from a an exhibition and also a, a filmmaking background. I've w- worked for almost thirty years with um, the American Cinematheque, which is a nonprofit a film group here in L.A. that runs the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood and the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. So I used to be the head of programming in the 90s and 2000s, and I would track down the film prints and and interview the filmmakers or the, the lead actors or the writer. Um, and then I've also made several horror films myself, um, an anthology horror film that came out in 2007, Called Trapped Ashes with episodes directed by Joe Dante and Ken Russell and Monty Hellman.
2: Oh wow! And
0: I I directed a, a supernatural thriller in Ireland that came out in um, 2017 called Nails with uh, Sean McDonald who starred in The Descent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've I've kind of worked you know both sides of the fence I guess you would say both from the the sort of you know filmmaking side as well as the distribution an exhibition side. Um, and then uh, Craig and I, about a year, year and a half ago, decided to spin off and start Deaf Crocodile, which is sort of closer to what we were initially doing with Cinelicious Picks, which is like 50% of our um, catalog or our new world cinema titles. So, for example, we're releasing two wonderful art house movies from India, an um, uh, amazing movie called The Village House from a first-time filmmaker named Achal Mishra, which is I sort of compare to, to Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. It charts 30 years in the life of a, of a rural family in India as seen through the changes in the house, the matriarch's house where they all gather together. And then a, a wonderful film called The Shepherdess and the Seven Songs, um, which is set in the uh, the Jammu Kashmiri region of India's very mountainous kind of forbidding beautiful terrain about a woman yeah. who marries into a, a tribe of nomadic herdsmen and and finds herself confronting the strictures of the, the patriarchy and um, and both of those are truly remarkable films. We're, we're releasing, um, uh, actually we've, we've licensed all of the films from an amazing Iranian director named Shahram Mokri. Um, his latest film, Careless Crime won, uh, the best screenplay award at the Venice Film Festival last year. And it's inspired by the Cinema Rex tragedy. Do, do you know what that was?
2: Mm-mm. No. So
0: in, in 1978, a group of domestic terrorists set fire to a packed cinema in Iran and killed over 450 people who were inside watching a movie. Um, And it was the event that actually triggered the Iranian Revolution. So there had been a spate of of cinema burnings in Iran because they equated cinema with, with sort of corrupt Western ideology. And most of them were empty cinemas, but this one happened to be not just happened. They, they, they consciously knew that it was packed with people and they were unfortunately burned to death incinerated. Um, and so Shara Mokri, whose work, um, is, is kind of a fascinating art house meditation on, on genre filmmaking, um, uses that tragedy of the cinema rex fire as a jumping off point to talk about Cinema and memory, and how cinema plays with time, in a way similar to like Alain René or Chris Marker, the great French filmmakers mm-hmm. yeah. of the '60s. Oh, that's um, I'm and, sold. <laughs> oh no, it's amazing. It's yeah. it's the events of 1978 and the present all happen at this in the same chronology. So it's mm-hmm. as if the past and the present are not separated by time. Um, and we were so. Or- impressed by or that
3: they, film. Oh, go ahead. Say not they're not separated by time or space. Uh, sometimes the past and the present literally interact with each other. It's 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 an
0: amazing film to watch. Wow. Well, man. we were so impressed by that movie that we actually tracked down his three previous films, um uh, Ash can the Charm during Another Stories, Fish and Cat and Invasion. And licensed those, uh, and Fishing and Cat in particular is incredible. It's a two and a half hour single shot movie, which is a meditation on American 1970s slasher films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th, but seen as, as if like Tarkovsky decided to do a meditation on American slasher films. <laughs> <So> wow! <laughs> it's, it's this amazing art house movie about a group of you know very attractive young Iranians that gather. At this incredibly creepy remote lake for a kite flying festival, where it just so happens that there's two unbelievably sinister guys that run a restaurant next door that serves human flesh, no. God. like <laughs> Sweeney Todd style. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've ever seen Stalker, the oh, yeah. great Tarkovsky mm-hmm. masterpiece on Criterion, mm-hmm. um, you know that it's a science fiction film. Sort of, it is, mm-hmm. yeah. but it bears so little resemblance to most science fiction films. Well, Fishing Cat is a horror film with quotations, but it is, it is so unlike most horror films you've ever seen. And yet it's incredibly creepy and brilliant. So we, we just love Sharam's work. And, um, so we sort of cornered the market in, in Sharam Mokri movies and we're, we're going to be doing retrospectives that are screening around the country for the next few months and then are planning to release um, working with OCN vinegar syndrome, who are our, our home video partners, a, um, a box set of of all four of uh, Sharam's films. And, and I'm hoping that genre fans will really um, check them out because he loves horror films. He loves thrillers, Hitchcockian-type movies, but he does them in his own way, which is really remarkable.
1: You know, I, I, I love uh, Iranian cinema, but we get so little of it. I mean, I think it's really just Kiristami, Panahi, um, and I guess uh, the, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. That's maybe a good example of, uh, of Iranian genre film that, uh, yeah, I, I can't wait. And uh, Craig, were you trying to say something?
3: I'm just trying to think uh I don't that that single shot uh fish and cat um I mean I've seen other you know single shot films like what, 1917 and mm-hmm. there's, there's been a few others but they're uh he, it's not just a single shot because he's still playing with time and space like he does with careless crime um so the it's it's one inter- uninterrupted shot but as he moves around with the camera you 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 revisit um locations and people from different perspectives even though the camera has never stopped it's all, it's all done in one in real time in one take wow so it's it's, so it's not just the fact that, that there's no cuts he still manages to to give you the multiple perspectives of of a single scene um without cutting it, it's i've never seen anything like it it's really incredible
1: is it is it an actual <laughs> single sh- i mean like literally because 1917 I, had some cuts but they're just hidden in birdman I right. I,
0: I think it I is I I, I I am I'm fair, we've looked we've looked at it several times now and i can't see the cuts yeah okay you
3: know I, yeah it's not cuts where like you know you pass in front of a tree or something and you slip right, in a cut right. there like I, I, don't, yeah. I don't think there's anything like that it's yeah. incredible
1: i think uh, only, i think russian arc is an actual and i think uh, victoria might be i think those are the only ones uh, rope was close <laughs> i think there are two cuts yeah. in rope yeah um
2: right zoom it in, zoom into a guy's you know the back of a guy's jacket or something and no the, actually the the no cut thing kind of stresses me out. Like I'm getting anxious <laughs> just thinking about it, you know? Um, so
0: I imagine well, then, that
2: adds to the, to the uh, mood of the, of the film.
0: Oh yeah. It's got an incredibly, um, it's kind of sinister, oppressive feel to it, which um, uh, if if you're already stressed out by.
2: Yeah. T- I mean, like <laughs> this, I, I'm sitting here like wringing my hands, like, yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, not not a fan of single cut movies or no cut well, just, movies.
2: You know, just anything that's well, if you're saying oppressive and <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. the anxiety well,
0: extremely, like, you know, what <laughs> what he what he does so well, and he does this I think in all of his films, is to create a sense of of mystery, suspense and anticipation. And I think those are um really underrated qualities which are key to cinematic narrative mm-hmm. um you know uh, hitchcock for for many years was sort of derided or sort of dismissed as just a great master of suspense films mm-hmm. except what he does in almost all of his films is to create an incredible sense of mystery and and suspense and expectation
1: definitely
0: right. and and i think those are some of the most important qualities in the cinematic experience um I, I love films that generate mystery i love puzzle box mm-hmm. movies I love, I love peter greenaway movies you know okay. his early films like a zed two knots and the draftsman's contract and you know they used to be screened and kind of talked about and widely available um and um you know I think he's sort of slipped off the radar a bit in the past few years which is a shame um
1: well the Cook uh, of the thief has still still gets wow.
0: talked about um yeah such a great such a great movie but all all of those films that he made in the you know from the late 70s 80s early 90s mm-hmm. are just really brilliant.
1: I still think that *Gods* Park* is a spiritual sequel to *Cook the Thief*, but that's a that's a long story and spoilers too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is well, awesome.
2: Um, so, well,
0: so I, as, you know, as I was going to say, you know, we we love new <coughs> filmmaking. We love the excitement that comes with that, mm-hmm. and on a distribution level, it's also easier because typically the the producer or the sales agent has the elements ready to deliver. And they want right. to get the film out there sooner rather than later while it's still mm-hmm. fresh, right? Because mm-hmm. new, new movies have this bizarre sort of expiration, like shelf date, mm-hmm. right? Like you play festivals, but then it really needs to come out within the next nine to 12 months or it's seen as kind of old hat that's changed somewhat because of the pandemic and and all of the, the different distribution models that have been upended Mm -hmm. because art has distribution as, as both of you, I'm sure know was typically for many years, you know, you do a platform release, you, you book New York and LA, right. And then you use that to sort of piggyback and, and get bookings in other cities San Francisco, Austin, Boston, Chicago, Miami—you name it—and mm-hmm. then <laughs> you would wait. You would wait, and you would wait a couple months, and then you release on streaming and/or home video, and you do your mm-hmm. TV sale and your educational, et cetera. Well, that's all kind of upended now, yeah. and because theatrical venues have been closed for so long. You know, I, I, and I'm also now seeing not just the virtual cinema model whereby people are, are doing a quote unquote virtual theatrical release for a week or two weeks with theaters, but I don't know that it's going to be as important moving forward for art house releases to launch first in New York and LA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't know that. That the theatrical run is going to be as important moving forward, and and something is lost there. But um, you know the industry has to adapt, and so clearly streaming and the digital end is is more important now. Um, but I also think that that people still love physical media, and there's a very strong. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody I've talked to <laughs> and that, that, that does specialized physical media said that they they have done, you know, the, the best business in years during the pandemic because people mm-hmm. are stuck at home Yeah. and they're buying Blu-rays. They're buying physical mm-hmm. media to watch at home.
1: You're talking to two of them and we have <laughs> <laughs> lots of <laughs> listeners doing that. In fact, I, I own almost all the Arbolus films. So – uh uh, and I haven't, haven't watched them all. That's the thing. Uh, you buy films and you don't, I haven't watched Satan Tango yet. Waiting for a, um, maybe a long weekend or something for that one. But yeah, you know, I, I don't love that model. And having lived in LA and, you know, then the movies would come out and they would just be packed or you couldn't get tickets if they were, you know, uh, if they were a popular indie film. And then living in another market, you know, if they, they're not a popular film and one you want to see, they just never get here. So, um, so. That's it, right. I kind of, you know, I I know it's a controversial topic, you know, streaming with uh, with movie theaters. Uh, I'm on the board of a, a my local th- indie theater, but um, I kind of like the uh, the open
2: access, you know. I do too. I mean, I you know I love the theatrical experience, and I and I want to uh, protect that. I don't want our right uh, local cinemas to go anywhere, um, but also I really love getting more eyes on these movies uh, mm-hmm. for the people that don't live in in the larger markets. And um, I know for me with, you know, we've got a kid and it's, you know, going to a movie turns out to be an extremely expensive and, you mm. know, obnoxious process because you have to find a sitter and, you know, all that. And sometimes you just want to get up and go to a movie and you can't do that. And so in the last few years, I mean, even pre-COVID, we were able to see a lot of new releases um at home because uh we were able to stream it uh on through a service or rent it or whatever VOD. And um so I, I kinda I kinda like it. Um yeah. as long as we still preserve uh you know aspects of the theatrical experience.
1: Jill, you should is is important. you should yeah. totally show uh fish and cat to your your daughter. <laughs> 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 that's an inside well, joke I, uh, she she showed, to, showed the birds and that didn't go so well
2: <laughs> no i completely forgot about the uh the <laughs> farmer's eyes pecked out and you know up to that point she was really digging it and then so you know i would talked about this a few episodes back and our listeners, who we love so much, have really given me a hard time about this. So,
0: uh, how, old, how old is your daughter? She
2: she will be eleven next month. So, um, you know, and she's she's pretty cool, and and we watch a lot of classics. And I thought, well, the birds, you know, it's it's. It's kind of quirky, and it'll be fine. She'll, you know, it's she's not gonna get freaked out, and I just uh, totally forgot about that, you know, zoom in on those, yeah, you know, bloody, bloody eye sockets. Whatever you do,
1: don't show her Belladonna of sadness.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, no, definitely. Well, you know, I was when I was a kid. I, I grew up in the Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania area. And we were one of the first areas that got HBO.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: And, uh, my older brother had kicked me out of our bedroom. And so I had to go sleep downstairs in the family room, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise Mm -hmm. and probably led me into my career in movies because (laughs) I would just, I could stay up all hours watching movies. Well, and, and HBO, I don't know if, uh, if, um, Any of you remember, but in the early (laughs) years, they ran all this really sort of creepy, Mm -hmm. sleazy art house stuff. Mm -hmm. So they ran like, um, uh, going places, Mm -hmm. um, with Gerard Depardieu and Patrick DeWare, and they ran, and John Moreau as well. Yeah. yeah, and, and old, they, old, they ran uh, with lipstick with the Hemingway sisters, which is incredibly disturbing, and, and uh, <laughs> looking for Mr. Yeah. Uh, Goodbar.
1: I remember oh that one, yeah.
0: Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like 11, 12 years old, and I'm watching these movies, and I'm like, ah.
3: Mm-hmm. That's fantastic.
1: I'm know, old enough so to I... remember, and I had HBO. I, I didn't see um, Going Places but I or, or Alfredo Garcia, but I saw some crazy ones, including uh, Mr. Goodbar on HBO. And I think I was about 10 at the time. Um.
0: Oh, that's (laughs) so disturbing. (laughs) And what's interesting (laughs) about HBO is that they have kept that model of, of kind of edgy art house mixed with, with, you know, eroticism and a healthy, you know, dose of sexuality and nudity all the way down the line. Mm -hmm. If you look at their initial model and the kind of movies that they ran, because it's very different now, the type of films and, and, they do most, you know, mostly their own content now, but they're still sort of true to that original vision, which is really fascinating. Yeah. You know, being both sort of arty and disturbing and sleazy. (laughs) So, um, but I showed my son uh, when he was young, it, the terror from beyond space. Okay. And at one point about halfway through the movie, when it was getting pretty scary, I remember looking back, and all I could see were was the top of his head and his eyeballs. Like he was hiding behind a chair. <laughs> wow. And I said, Shondor, do you want me to turn this off? He goes, no, no. oh well, keep watching. I said, no, I think it's really too scary. No,
2: no, no, no. So we made it through the end, but I think it... Terrorized him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I saw, Oh, he'll just be scarred for life. It's fine. Don't hey, worry about it. I saw The
1: Shining <laughs> when I was eight, and I'm fine. It's actually one of my favorite movies. Uh, although, you know, that during those two weeks afterward, I, I, I don't think I left the house. So I prepared for the pandemic in that way. Well, wow, this is, <laughs> this is, this is great. Did not expect to take deep, these deep dives. Um, but, um, well, well my,
0: my wife, I have to say, my wife, um, some of her favorite memories growing up are watching horror movies in Santa Cruz with her dad. Mm. I think she was like six or seven when they watched Night of the Living Dead together. Oh, wow. my God.
2: God. That, yeah, and,
0: and she is a lifelong horror uh, fanatic. In fact, she loves scary movies even more than I do, and I make them. I've made several <laughs> horror films, and I get terrified. By the when I was a kid, I used to leave the room and I would go out into the hall and close the door, but leave it open a crack. And if the movie gets <laughs> too scary, I would shut it like that. That's mm. how I would be safe. And I still kind of do that if the movie gets too scary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She'll turn it off. She'll go, you know, I was watching Oculus. The, the, oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, which is terrifying. film with Karen Gillan was really great. A few years ago, and I was squirming on the couch and my wife finally said, I'm turning this off you're so that's hilarious miserable watching this film it's scaring <laughs>
1: you so yeah flanagan's <laughs> done some interesting stuff i i think th- there's there's art within horror um so jill you're you're being a good mom
2: <laughs> exposing your daughter well She's- you know i had already seen some stuff you know by the time i was her age you know and mm-hmm. but also you know the 80s were well, just parenting was different. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I had, you know, I'd seen Cujo and, you know, just, uh, and I had seen, uh, uh, you know, Friday the 13th and, and I thought it's the birds, mm-hmm. no big deal, but yeah. these kids these days are too
1: soft. <laughs> yeah. I saw Phantasm yeah. when I was nine, I think. So, uh, yeah, that, that one, um, was, was I think that was actually tougher than The Shining because I had just Ooh. memories yeah, of that. Yeah, that
2: one's
3: exposed to, to horror films too young. Yeah. I told his brother went to the theater to see Coma with him. And I think that came out in like the late 70s, so I was under 10. Wow. And I, I, all I remember is spending most of the time on the floor of the theater. I, oh, I my didn't.
2: God.
3: <laughs> wow.
2: You know, my, my,
0: my you know, mom my mom took me to see alien the night it opened in pittsburgh i begged her because i thought it was going to be another great super fun sci-fi movie like star wars (laughs)
2: star wars Oh, and i was
0: already in my early teens and i think think i spent most of the movie literally like trying to crawl into her lap and she's like you know you're way too big for i was like i can't watch
1: this Ah." (laughs) i'm sure that happened with a lot of people uh star wars to alien um well Uh, what a fantastic digression but um I want to want to just ask about your restorations a little bit. So I mean you, you did some great work with Arbalos um and you know that's one thing I I don't I'm not familiar with that craft, you know, Craig, some of the the terms you've used already um, have gone over my head. Um but the thing is I I benefit from seeing them. So I as I mentioned we're in a, in a, a great period where a lot of restorations are coming out. Um
3: I'd say something you you uh, that, that doesn't
1: seem clear, just just ask me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. But, um, can I, so for example, uh, Pelham 123, like, what, what did that process, like, was that a long process? I'm sure Satan Tango was, but, um, you
3: can, you assault on precinct what's that? You mean assault on precinct
1: 13? Oh, did, oh, I had it wrong. I thought it was the taking of the poem. One, two 123. <laughs> which is a great,
0: which is a which great Which is a film. fantastic film.
2: <laughs> I'm so that sorry. A,
0: that's a brilliant film. <laughs> it as is. Well, another great 70s, uh, action film. It is.
1: I, I apologize to my listeners for my poor preparation, but, um, so, yeah. <laughs> so that one, um, so can you talk us through, like, how, how you approach that, you know, just the process and, um, what, it, what it's like? Well, on every, on
3: every, on every sh- Project: the, the first thing is to figure out what what's the best element that's available. Um, we've been lucky enough that in most cases it's been the original negative, uh, which does create uh, more work, but mm-hmm. the product is is better. Because um, with the original negative, obviously you've got the the best the best resolution, but you also are Starting from scratch with the color grade because um, there's no timing in the original negative, um, but it, you know it, it just it. I, in my opinion, it's worth it. I'm I'm. Uh, I'd rather it take longer and maybe mm-hmm. a little more um, to to get it done right. Get it done as, as well as you possibly can. Um,
0: so so, yeah. so for so for example an original 35 millimeter negative has about 4k of information in each frame of the film. Mm -hmm. So if you're scanning in 4k, you are getting essentially the same amount of information as is contained in that 35 millimeter negative frame. Mm -hmm. But every time you (laughs) go
3: down. At IMAX, we we did a, a bunch of tests and, Depending on the film stock and the lenses, you can probably get close to 6K out of some 35
1: millimeter. Oh, great! We're upgrading our disks again. <laughs> I'm about to watch Citizen Kane in 4K on IMAX. So. Uh...
0: Yeah, but for for most purposes, it's it's close to to 4K or 4K yeah. would be sufficient to to give you the data that's on that 35 millimeter negative frame. But every time you you go down a generation so mm-hmm. so for example you'd take your 35 millimeter negative and you would make an inner positive and then an inner negative from that and that's the in was what was used to strike most release prints that's typically how things worked sort of in the old days because you didn't want to run your original negative through a printer to, be- like they did with the salt. <laughs> Yeah, because they would mm-hmm. dam- you would damage it every time you ran it through a printer. I would it would you know get wear and tear on it. So, but every time you go down, so if you go from mm-hmm. your your OCN, your original camera negative, to an IP, to an IN, mm-hmm. to then a release print, you've already gone down successive generations. So, if you scan off of a release print, you may only be getting, and Craig, you can correct me. 2K of data in each of those frames, right?
1: Yeah, it's like a like a copy of a copy of a copy. here yeah. obviously. Exactly. And the elements that's, are going to degrade. Yeah.
0: It's a significant right. drop each time. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's why you want to go back, if possible, and if it exists, to the camera negative. But as Craig said, it's not timed. It's it's what mm-hmm. was exposed in the camera before they went in and did the the color grade. So that means you have to regrade it and that's a really significant step in the process. Hopefully if the filmmaker or the cinematographer is still alive, you can involve them and they can say, this is what we, you know, this is how it should look. It should be a little brighter, a little darker. In some cases, Craig, maybe you want to talk about son of the the white mayor, the, the filmmaker Marcel, Yankovich, who, who sadly just passed away a few months ago, but was alive when Craig started his work on *Son of the White Mare*, had a very different, <laughs> a very different take on the color grade for his animated masterpiece.
3: Yeah, that's very interesting because, especially with animation, uh, you're not really color timing it because you've drawn; it's all hand-drawn animation cells, and those that that's what color they are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had the original scan of the negative of what all of the film looked like, what the animated film looked like. Um, and then we got back um, the director's graded um, files and he had changed it like dramatically. Oh, wow. Which really surprised me because I was like, I, I had been working on the restoration and I like, I, I'd been working on it for so long. Like I know what the film looked like. And then when I got that back, I'm like, Whoa, this is. a completely <laughs> <different film." laughs> Um, but that, that is what he wanted it to look like. Um, so yeah, I mean, and that's the kind of thing where, you know, there's been numerous releases over the years where, uh, a director or a cinematographer, uh, has changed a film. So it's, Uh, you know it's their film so yeah you have to respect that i was
2: gonna ask have have y'all been in touch with carpenter is he involved at all
3: uh joseph uh kaufman the executive producer did did reach out to him to um have him you know take a look at what we were doing but he Mm -hmm. he declined
1: so he's probably busy
3: i
0: think i think he is I think he is planning at some point to take a look at the, the restoration mm-hmm. and Joe is trying to trying to work that out with okay. him, but he mm-hmm. has not been involved um, week to week, month to month in this, yeah. this restoration. And that's, you know, some filmmakers are like, I'm, I'm busy with other projects and you can, you know, sure. handle it on your own. If a filmmaker either, is not available, or if they're in another country, for example, or, or the health doesn't permit them to kind of take a direct role in the restoration, or if they've passed away, mm-hmm. then it becomes sort of a detective mm-hmm. film right. archaeological question, as well as a creative question of then trying to find either a, a reference print um, it, that's hopefully not faded and, and you know was was made when the film came out originally or the best dvd or blu-ray mm-hmm. release that might have been done earlier so craig maybe you can talk about the last movie and and using the academy's print as as reference for that That's So, a good example
1: yeah
3: the um all we had to really go on with that um particularly because there really wasn't a, a a decent release prior to ours um was the last print that um, both Dennis Hopper and, and, uh, the cinematographer, um, Lazlo Kovacs, um, had proved. So mm-hmm. we were able to screen that print. Um, and, uh, Dennis, what, I, I always forget his name. What was the the, 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 gentleman from the Academy that was there with him?
0: Or what? I think it was, was it Grover Crisp from Sony? No.
3: Nope. Um, from
0: Mike the po- Mike Pogorzelski yeah. was it? Yeah. I think it was yeah. Mike, the head of the Academy Film Archive. I think yeah. also Grover. I think Grover wasn't Grover. Chris was there as well because he um, is the kind of legendary head of of the Sony Columbia archive and has spearheaded. Yeah, he might have all, all of their amazing restorations. He had uh, worked on Easy Rider, so he knew that. Oh, nice. He had, he had worked with with Hopper and the cinematographer previously, and so he had a very good sense of. Of what they wanted from the look of you know the film as well, right? But, but Craig, maybe it, you can talk about the sky. This the
3: yeah, sky there in particular. were there were a couple of key key takeaways that were important to know when we screened that print. Was uh, one was that the uh, the sky was always exposed properly, um, mm-hmm. and that meant that Dennis in the background was in shadow. Then that meant Dennis was in the foreground and shadow. They didn't want the sky blown out. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of the opposite of how almost everyone else does it.
1: It's yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
3: And the other thing that was kind of interesting is that there were some, you know, how there's like a film within the film. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're shooting the Western. Mm-hmm. The scenes where they were shooting the Western, um, the, the color wasn't the, the color timing wasn't super, um, consistent and, and, and it, it would have been better. And that was also, they were basically like, he doesn't care. That's not like, that's not the, the main story of the film. So the story part of the film, they, they paid much more attention to the, to the timing. Um, the the shots of of them making the western, um. Not so much, mm. and so that. Was, it was it was difficult to do, but yeah, there were, were some of those scenes. I'm like, we could
1: make this book better, and they're like, yeah, but it's not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to respect that that yeah that vision. I I think I, I have the indicator version of that, which is probably your restoration, right, Craig. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you that we, we screened that at the, uh, the, our indie theater. And, uh, as I mentioned, I'm on the board of that indie theater. I, I wasn't able to make that, but I heard that it was sold out and people brought like old newspapers and old, uh, materials from, uh, from that when the film came out. Huge, huge, uh, turnout and a lot of excitement. Um,
0: what's, what's the indie theater you're on the board of, by the
1: way? It's called, uh, called the Nickelodeon, uh, not to be confused with the kids TV network. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. So. Oh, that's
0: fantastic. Yes, I've actually heard of it. I think it's on our, our, um, our bookers chart. We yeah. have a massive sort of database that we put together of, of indie and art house theaters around the country. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, but to, to kind of segue to some of the things that we're working on now, the first of our, our kind of vintage cult titles that we're putting out, um, just screened, um, a couple of weeks ago at the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal, which is the biggest kind of genre festival in North America every year. And it's called The Unknown Man of Chandagore. And it's a Swiss kind of James Bond era super spy movie um, by a director named Jean-Louis Roy. It was released in nineteen sixty-seven with an amazing cast of kind of, of European actors. Uh, Daniel Emil Fork who is the cadaverous, bald, mad scientist in City of Lost Children. Hmm. And uh, he plays a cadaverous, uh, bald, mad scientist in this film as well. He, he either played that role or the devil in almost every movie he made. <laughs> um, and he's, fan- he's Quite fantastic. Type, yes. Howard Vernon, who was in, um, uh, like, 30 of Jess Franco movies, uh, hmm. starting with The Awful Dr. Orloff. Is in it. And then the famed French, uh, singer-songwriter Serge Gainsbourg mm-hmm. has a major supporting role. Um, he, he actually had a fairly significant film career. Mm-hmm. He, he's in like Peplum Italian sword and sandal movies as an actor. He directed <laughs> movies himself. Uh, Je one en plus with, um, his partner Jane Birkin and, yeah. uh, Joe D'Alessandro and he had a. You know, he had a long kind of fascinating film career. But he's in this and he actually performs a song that he wrote in the middle of the movie called Bye Bye Mr. Spy, which is just incredible. So it's one of those films that really slipped through the cracks of film history. Uh, I had read about it many years ago and, and kept it on this this odd list in the back of my brain of, of kind of obscure movies to track down. It's fantastic. So,
3: it's fantastic. It,
0: it. It's
3: and it and it, it it's you know it's called kind of a like a parody of of sixty spy movies but mm-hmm. it, it 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 it's right on the edge of parody and its own spy movie like it it doesn't go full parody like you're laughing out loud like mm-hmm. it's hilarious because it's also its own spy movie it's like it's it's a fine line right between the two. It, it's
0: kind of closer in tone to something like Godard's alphaville or or Kubrick's dr Strange love with, sure. with elements of like dr who and the Avengers um
3: and better cinematography and 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 uh, locations than any spy film I've seen
0: hmm.
1: they, they oh, ever, cool. gorgeous. So, so kind of satire and tribute at the same time um,
0: yeah and and we Track tracked down the rights with the, the director's sons, Michael and Christian Roy, who have been incredibly helpful and supportive. And the Cinematheque Suisse had done a 4K scan uh, of the film that we were able to access. And so we're going to be putting that out on, on Blu-ray with OCN Vinegar Syndrome in yes. January um, as our first official deaf crocodile release. And that will have, um, you know, an archival interview with Jean-Louis Roy, and and also a, a new interview that we filmed with with Roy's widow and the first assistant director on the film, talking about the making of the movie and his career. So that's going to be that's going to be super fun. And then after that, in February, we're putting out uh, the first ever Blu-ray release of this amazing early 1980s Romanian animated sci-fi. Uh, adventure called Delta Space Mission. Wow. <laughs> which is sort of like if Moabius and MC Escher had teamed up to make a, a Romanian Saturday morning cartoon that was sort of influenced by Heavy Metal Magazine, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Hanna-Barbera. So it's this crazy confluence of of American sci-fi and pop culture, but filtered through a behind-the-iron-curtain, early 80s uh, communist sensibility. And it's another one of those movies that I've spent over five years tracking down, and finally um, we were able to license it from um, the CNC the Romanian Film Center, and, and... access a 4k scan from the romanian film archive and the co-director of the film Kaylin kazan is still alive in bucharest and has has also shared amazing stories with us about the making of the film and so so we're super excited about that um and then i don't know craig do you want to do you want to tell them about our big sort of super secret project
1: Well, what do you think about that? Can I just ask real quick? Did, am I remember? So you mentioned Serge Gainsbourg, Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin. Didn't you do the restoration for the Agnes Varda and Jane Birkin movies, or am I remembering it incorrectly?
0: We released them through Sinalicious Picks. Those were actually restored by Agnes herself um, um, in France. She did a gotcha. 2K restoration of both of those films. We we discussed doing it with her through. Arbelos. I'm sorry, this was pre-Arbelos. It was Cinelicious, um, and she was able to get finance through the French government to have them scanned and restored in, in France. and okay. so she opted to go with that because I they maybe, had government funding. When I thought we maybe those were. I your, love the films. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. they're 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 was, interesting films. I thought maybe those might be your your titles on Criterion. Um,
0: do you have any? They, they were. They were. Um, Initially back at um, CineLicious Days, but mm-hmm. um, the, the contract ended by the time that Criterion um, right. picked them up and released them. So we did do a Blu-ray release of both films through CineLicious Picks, which is now out of print.
1: Okay. Yeah, weird, weird films. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, I, I want to hear the secret. <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, well, Craig, do you want to tell him about...
1: But-
3: go go for it! Yeah, this, this this was your amazing discovery.
1: <laughs> all right. Okay.
3: So
0: so a couple of years ago, uh, I I found a amazing soul funk soundtrack album for a, a kind of a, a black urban crime film called Solomon King, and I'm a I'm a huge um, music buff and record collector, so I'm always listening to all sorts of of odd and, and obscure stuff, um, and I fell in love with this, this soundtrack album. It was all these obscure Oakland, California area artists from the early 70s, and so I wanted to look at the film and found out that it was a lost movie that, huh. that it, had kind of disappeared 45, 40 years ago.
3: You sent me the link. There was like a YouTube video that just had the, 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 the theme song, and... All I had to hear was the theme song. That's all I needed to know. And I'm like, yeah, we need to find this film.
0: <laughs> so it's kind of naive to say, hey, this movie's lost, but we're going to find it. Because that's <laughs> what we do. Like, we find lost movies. So I was like, yeah, we'll go find it, right? Well, as it turns out, we have found it. Wow. Which is sort of remarkable. We spent a couple years trying to track down the filmmaker and, and eventually learned that he passed away in the early 2000s. And... He was an amazing entrepreneur, kind of visionary, black businessman, artist, filmmaker. He wrote, co-directed, starred in, and produced the film. He had uh, a record label. He hosted a local sort of soul train type kind of soul funk TV program in, in Oakland. He owned restaurants. He had a series of, of fashion, black urban fashion stores in Oakland and uh, in the Los Angeles area. And he really should have been like Barry Gordy. He, he should have been, you know, famous and rich. And unfortunately, he didn't apparently make any money at any of these ventures. But he was incredibly driven, which is amazing. So we found his widow, who lives outside of the Bay Area, And she was overjoyed to hear from us. She says, I've been waiting for this phone call for the last, you know, 25, 30 years for somebody to call up and say, we're going to find my husband's film. She had what she thought was the camera negative sitting in her closet for the past 20 years. Oh, my God. We got so excited. And then actually on a Zoom call, we had her and her daughter unspool some of the, the reels of of film stock that were on cores. And it turns out that it was the 35 millimeter soundtrack elements, not the picture. Oh, so that was good. Mm -hmm. We had the sound, but we still needed the picture. So we managed to locate what appears to be the only complete print in existence of of the original version of the film. Um, with UCLA archive here in LA, which was pretty badly faded. Hmm. and uh, Craig um, arranged for a scan test of about 10 seconds of the footage, and then working with our colorist, Tyler, they went in to see if it was possible to restore the faded color and improve the image, and I I have to say it's, like, miraculous. Wow. We weren't really sure if it was going to be possible. We're, like, sometimes when a film is, like, so kind of magenta-purple, it's like there's nothing... You can do, but in this case, it was like night and day and it's going to look phenomenal. I mean, it won't look, it won't look like it it would off the camera negative, but as far as we know, the camera negative is lost, destroyed. It's, you know, it's gone. Um, so, uh, we are actually bringing this independent black urban action film back from total That's obscurity great. And, and being lost and it's sort of a kind of a cross between dolomite and a, a kind of a rod taylor liquidator or matt helm type action film and and the dirk diggler movies within a movie <laughs> and boogie nights <laughs> you know all the crazy sort of chop yeah. socky stuff yeah that he does with john c Riley. that's fun yeah <laughs> it is jaw-dropping the fashions the music all of the locations which were shot in oakland in the early 70s and preserve this long-gone kind of uh, black urban culture there which is amazing just from a historical and cultural uh perspective yeah it's so like,
3: it's like dolomite of the west coast except huh. this happened about a year before dolomite hmm. well the move. The yeah,
0: I think R- Rudy Ray Moore had created the Dolomite character in clubs, but, mm-hmm. but Dolomite, the film actually came out, I think a year after, um, this movie. So, but clearly, you know, this was kind of in the zeitgeist and it's also great to see one of these kind of urban action films. And it was obviously, it was meant for, for like an inner city audience and it's, you know, it was meant to be a commercial kind of, you know, brawny, action film, like I said, sort of a liquidator, Matt Helm type, type movie, Mm -hmm. but it's great to see it from a black filmmaker's Mm -hmm. perspective. And a lot of his family and friends are in the movie. And of course all of the fabulous clothes in the movie are from his fashion stores. So these incredible, like tight tight, polyester (laughs) pants and, and you know, the shirts, the incredible floral shirts, and the guys are all wearing, like, incredible 2 tone shoes with, like, three-inch heels, and it's just fantastic. <laughs> no, it's just captures such an amazing he had, you know, era in, in Oakland black culture. So we're super excited to be yeah, working Watts, on this with his widow.
3: Sal Watts was got to be one of the most ambitious people I've ever heard of Um and he took all, all of the things that he had been doing and put them all together to make this film. Um, he had his record label, which did the soundtrack. He had his clothing stores, which did, which handled all the costumes. You know, he had all his friends and family, um, are in it, so, you know, uh, uh, his, wa- his widow, you know, let us know that, you know, she's pointing out like, Oh yeah, that's our living room and you know, that's car and it's it's it's, it's, you know this was just a a bunch of friends and family members putting everything they had together and and made this this incredible film which has a you know it's it it's not a highly polished film by any means but it also it has a a sense of humor to it as well so it's like it it doesn't take itself too seriously Mm -hmm. which would kind of be off-putting um it's I'm super excited. And like sounds great. If you just went into a theater and closed your eyes and just listened to the soundtrack is just incredible.
0: Oh, it's got one of the greatest early seventies kind of kind of soul funk soundtracks I've ever heard. Uh and the Maserati he drives in the film is his Maserati. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Um... Um so it's just you know, that that is a project we're super excited about we're working on some eastern european and russian um genre films some real incredible gems um that have slipped through the cracks that we're going to be releasing as well and uh and I, I i think for all of the older kind of cult-oriented titles or the genre titles those will definitely come out on on physical media um for the blu-ray audience with extras and and interviews and bonus features as well as as digital and theatrical and for the new films it really depends on if if there is an audience for physical media mm-hmm. you know for, for some new movies there just isn't there, sure. there hasn't you know mm-hmm. people are not as you know um committed to buying them on blu-ray in the case of Shahram mokri's movies because we have all four of them and it's a it's an amazing opportunity to introduce his work to people um we are going to put out a boxed set, you know, a, a mm-hmm. little four-film Blu-ray set of, of all four of his features. So that is also going to come out in the, in the late spring That's through Vinegar
1: This episode is going to come out right around the time that Criterion is putting out the um, Van Peebles set, which is an, a, another, I, I think, critical pre-exploitation. So it sounds like that might be in the same vein as your release. So, yeah, I, thank you for saving films and finding films. Um, I, oh, I...
0: I love Melvin is one of that was one of the first retrospectives I organized when I came to the cinema tech oh, in the early nineties so, yeah. was a tribute to Melvin Van Peebles who I, I knew from working in New York city. I worked for Robert De Niro's production company, Tribeca productions. And I had met Melvin mm-hmm. and, uh, I will never. F- one of America's most remarkable filmmakers. I, I agree, l- agree. Story of a three-day pass. Mm-hmm. Um, um, watermelon. do cheap. A watermelon. All is so thing. funny. Yeah. Sweet, sweetbacks. Just. A, a, you want to talk about a visionary artist? This Melbourne, and peoples. My God. Uh, I will never forget what he said to me though. After we had finished with the retrospective, I was driving a little Triumph Spitfire convertible at the time. Uh, 1970s kind of green convertible. And I pulled up uh, on the side street to, to go onto Sunset. And Melvin was standing there. And he, oh, wow. he waved to me and I waved back and he goes, you know, that's a great car. You don't have to go fast in that car. You already look like you're going fast. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I
2: was like, oh, oh wow.
0: man, I have the... Seal of approval from Melvin Van Peebles it does not get any better than this.
1: Put that on your resume, LinkedIn, everything. <laughs> That's, oh, yeah, I, hate it.
0: I, I love him. I love him so much.
1: I just missed. I was in New York a couple weeks back, and I just missed a sweetback uh, uh, restoration at MoMA. Um, but I'll, I'll have the box set soon. Um, I, my listeners would kill me if I didn't ask this question. Um, so. Often with, uh, with, with Blu-ray restorations, or I shouldn't say Blu-ray, just restorations in general. And I, I was really inter- interested in the comments, uh, Craig, that you made about, uh, the ar- artist's vision, especially with, uh, with Mayor, uh, you know, being, you know, sometimes surprising to you, but obviously you do have to respect it. But sometimes it gets controversial. So, uh, Juan Wai had a box set that was a little controversial because he changed things. Um, and, and one thing that's recurring, the, the biggest, and it's kind of an annoying complaint, uh, for, around criterion circles is with the color grading being too teal oriented. So the, it's actually become a joke, uh, they're teal Ray or, you know, um, and a lot, it actually happened with and Dry, which is about to come on, come out. Um, often when you play them in full motion, you don't even notice, but, um, but have you experienced any like, um, controversies or, or surprises that, uh. The color grades were shifted so dramatically, or or maybe can you explain maybe why sometimes because it, it, it does happen sometimes it does take a little well, yeah. l- bluish hue. Yeah. Most,
3: most modern films now they're 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 cyan and orange, uh, and mm. it drives me crazy as well. <laughs> uh, it just seems to be what the modern look of what they want films to look like, um, and that was actually a, a dictate <laughs> from <laughs> Joseph kaufman when we did assault on precinct 13 um don't make it cyan and orange Uh, (laughs) Mm because he's like that's not what it's supposed to look like he's like that's not what 1970s los angeles looked like he you know he's like i want it to look like the smog city that it was (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah like that 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 cyan orange thing is a is a it's just what all seems like all modern films now look like um I'm not a huge fan of it, but if that's what they want to make the new films look like that's that's their prerogative going back and making mm-hmm. old films look give them that color palette of a modern film
0: doesn't make sense to me
1: See, uh, you heard it here first Tilray is a thing
0: yeah. no it, it, it isn't you know to give a good example of one of the most famous films of all time and and how. It's it's changed in ways that people don't even realize. So Star Wars, people talk about, you know, obviously the the digitally, you know, quote unquote improved right mm-hmm. visual effects for the original film and New Hope. Mm-hmm. And whatever your feelings are are about that, um, one of the changes that people don't talk as much about is is the the color scheme, the color grade of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to see a private screening of an original IB Technicolor print of A New Hope. So, um, Technicolor shut down its dye transfer printing facility in Hollywood in, in I think it was late 74, early 75. I think The Godfather 2 was the last new film that they struck dye transfer prints of. Although, I think the, the actual last film was a reissue of Disney's Swiss Family Robinson, weirdly. They, they made <laughs> dye transfer prints of that, maybe in early 75. But they continued in England, in the UK, for another two years. And the last film that was struck in dye transfer was Star Wars, A New Home. Wow. Hmm. So there are probably half a dozen of these British IB Technicolor prints of Star Wars out there. They are some of the rarest dye transfer Technicolor prints in the world, obviously. And I saw one of them. Wow. And it was not at all what I expected. Because when you think of Ivy Technicolor, you think of, you know, like a Vincent Minnelli, American mm-hmm. in Paris, dazzling, right. saturated reds and blues and greens. This mm-hmm. was not that at all. In fact, it looked more like an early 70s kind of muted new Hollywood style movie and about halfway through i had this shocking moment of recognition and i realized what it really looked like was star wars when i saw it for the first time in oh 1977. my god wow yeah and i realized unless you actually see one of these dye transfer technicolor prints you're not seeing what star wars looked like when it came out in 1977 because people who who do the color grade now and if you do a 4k you you know ultra high def release they do what's called an hdr grade and and craig maybe you can just quickly describe what that is because that changes the look of a film as well that's a whole new color grade for people to see it in 4k uhd
3: yeah it's actually uh i mean it's with with uhd it's the it's it's the more significant change than the 4K resolution is the HDR. Um, and it's, it's new. And so people are still figuring out how to do old films in HDR. Um, mm-hmm. so some are going to push it too far and others are going to do nothing with it and others are going to get it just right. And we're all, everyone's still figuring it out. Um, cause you're able to get. More detail in the shadows, more detail in the highlights,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: more saturation. But, you know, do you want more saturation if that's not what it's supposed to look like? You right. know, so all these questions.
1: Um, well, we'll see. We're, I- we're about to get Citizen Kane and U- UHD. U- yeah. H- U- H- um, U- H- and one of the funniest jokes I saw on the internet was uh, 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 a tealed uh, uh, version of, of Citizen Kane. <laughs>
0: Wow. Well, HDR stands for High Dynamic Range. Okay. Yeah. In case you're uh, wondering. And, and it, uh-huh. it is a new grade mm-hmm. of of the film. If you want to put it out in 4K ultra high def, you can't just take the existing grade. You right. actually have to go in and do an HDR grade. And that is somebody's interpretation of what the film should look like. Interesting. And it, you're, so you're always adding now another layer of somebody's right. creative interpretation. Uh, and for a classic film, like A Citizen Kane or A Sweet Smell of Success or, or a film where the filmmakers, the director, the cinematographer are, are long gone, you're now dependent on hopefully a very skilled and sympathetic um, restoration team and colorist Who are going to do a lot of research and try to remain as faithful as possible to what they think the filmmaker's original vision would have been. Mm -hmm. That said, you're still looking at a new version of it. And that's why, that's why I say, you know, people who can tear their hair out about, um, uh, Star Wars, and, and another very quick anecdote, we had George Lucas at the Cinematheque in the early 2000s for the Dennis, opening night. Dennis, oh, they,
3: let me interrupt you real quick. I, I, I have to go. Uh, oh.
1: Well, yeah, we, thing,
3: yeah. Maybe
0: we can, we'll end it there. We'll We'll... Next time, we'll tell you what George Lucas said. Uh, <laughs> <to> <laughs> well, well, we kind people of people on the edge of their seats.
1: We kind of came full circle with uh, Sweet Smell Success. Um, so, yeah, yeah it, this has been a great episode, and I really enjoyed talking to you guys. So would love to have you back. And um, before and Craig, happy birthday. Happy birthday, yeah. Um, before you happy birthday, go, Craig. do you want to share where people can find you and uh, Def Cro- Crocodile and your works? Social media websites, that sort of stuff.
0: Uh, We're at uh, www.defcrocodile.com. I am um, Dennis at defcrocodile.com. Craig is is Craig at defcrocodile.com. If people have questions, or if they, you know, if they have some favorite obscure or lost movie that that they would love to see. Restored and re-released or a new film that, Mm -hmm. that they think is amazing that they may have been involved with making and they're, they're, please reach out to us. That's how we've wound up releasing a number of films as somebody, you know, came out of the woodwork and said, Hey, I, you know, I got this great movie or I know about this lost film. You know, would you take a look at it?
1: Great. Great. Yeah. Craig is in our Facebook group as well and, uh, very active, and I appreciate that, Craig. So I'm sure you'll keep us abreast of any any updates as things come out. And uh, happy birthday again! Wish you lots of luck, and uh, appreciate the, the conversation. Well, yes, we've, it's been great.
3: Uh, without flair, so you asked about that. So, well, very quickly, I'll just say: 4K Blu-ray release of Smoking the Bandit. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh,
2: oh, yes.
1: Okay. Um, uh, mustache.
3: The the severe hat head he has when he finally takes off his hat just uh, looks glorious in 4K. Oh my God!
2: (laughs) I already have this on Blu-ray, and I'm gonna have to upgrade it. I love this damn movie. You just sold me on that, so it's fantastic. Yeah, John and Bert go back a ways. Yeah, me and Bert have a history. So,
0: (laughs) I love Bert. Deliverance. Bert is so fantastic. What a great, great film. Love Deliverance. Hey, it was wonderful talking to both of you. Thank you so much for having us on.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. And Jill, do you want to hang on and we'll tell our pieces of flair? Yeah, sure. Okay, sure. What's what's yours?
2: So uh, my piece of flair uh, is Wolfwalkers, um, and this is one that we've rewatched recently. It's uh, currently on uh, um, Apple Apple TV. Yeah, and. we had watched it uh a few months ago and then uh recently the kiddo really loves it and um it's part of that um uh, kind of like uh, the i'm trying to think of the i'm drawing a blank on the studio but it's like a, yeah, I, a, a irish kind of yeah. irish fairy tale trilogy there was the Hang on, I've got to look this up because it's going to drive me nuts.
1: Yeah, one was, I think both of the other ones were nominated for Oscars. I forget. The Secret whole. of the Kells? The Secret think, of the Kells yeah. was one. That's wonderful. And yeah, it was
2: Song and of the, the Sea, the other one? Song of the Sea, that's right. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, that's incredible. So we, uh, so we watched this and it's just, uh, I think some of the, uh, at the beginning, some of the story was dragged a smidge, mm. but the, the, uh, animation is absolutely stunning and uh, and then finally we really got into the story and it's just a it's beautiful and Sean Bean's in it <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I, kept
2: thinking, I kept thinking, when's he gonna die? Um <laughs> spoilers, spoilers, oh, no, spoilers, Jill. <laughs> but uh but Sports no, not anything he's in now, people are waiting for him to lose. I just yeah. wait for just waiting for him to die. My husband no, and I were looking no. at each other going, No. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Um and then Maria Doyle Kennedy's in it, and mm. she I love her so much, and she has such a beautiful speaking voice and a beautiful singing voice. And so that was a real um, surprise. I had no earthly idea she she was uh, one of the voice actors in this. And so I was really, really excited about that. So if you haven't caught this one, um, it's really, really good. Um, so if you've got a an Apple TV subscription for um, Ted Lasso, <laughs> maybe branch out and, and watch this one because it, it is really, really a beautifully made film. I'll be watching the next
1: Ted Lasso after this episode. So uh yeah, uh yeah, it's been on my list and I just haven't gotten around to it, so I definitely will. Um well mine is actually almost a horror story. So I um I got got the September slate of imprint titles, which was kind of a uh, that's this Australian label that's doing really some interesting work. Um and one the, the one that stood out that I wanted to put right in the player was The Straight Story by David Lynch. Uh, I think this is maybe the first Blu-ray of it ever. Um, I, yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. And, and it's from Australia of all places. So I I put it in, uh, you know, I have like a, where I'm recording right now is kind of like my man cave and I have a TV here. I watch movies and I have a region free player. Um, put it in and it says, uh, your disc doesn't work or, oh, it, no. or it might not have been not, it said either your disc is scratched or not finished. I'm like, oh man. <laughs> so, I then I go I have an Oppo player downstairs and it worked there so I was able to uh, it, it had a happy ending um was able to watch oh, it well,
2: and, I yeah. have a couple imprint titles that I haven't popped in the player yet so you now you're to, making me want to go check that out
1: Oh I'm I'm trying all all the other ones immediately um, I have, yeah and I have we have that um that big box set coming out the um uh I forget the um uh yeah, Zang Emu, uh box set coming out Yeah um so, straight story, like, take everything of Twin Peaks <laughs> that's pleasant, and there is some pleasant, and basically that's yep. the film. Um, <laughs> yep. You could show Ellie this film.
2: I don't know if she'd it's like it. So, it's so good. And what's weird is I think uh, you can get a DVD of it, but it's only through the Disney Movie Club. <laughs> yeah, that's probably So you I, have to be a why. member of, yeah. which uh, I am a member of. Um, but you, but you can, (laughs) you know, you can, uh, uh, order it through them. So I'm glad, but I am glad that, um, uh, it has been released on Blu-ray, although I wish that it were, uh, Little easier to, to get here stateside.
1: I think that you probably can get it on eBay, although it might not be cheap, uh, because I, I expect it'll go out of print if it hasn't already. But, uh, yeah, such a, such a chill movie, beautiful, beautiful performance. I mean, Richard Farnsworth, uh, it's Mm -hmm. sad that, you know, he passed shortly after making this film, but, uh, remarkable career. And, um, yeah. So if you, if you have a chance, order this from Australia. And that's it. And Dennis, I see you're still hanging. So um, any parting thoughts? Oh, you asked our, our first criterion. Maybe we should answer that. Uh,
0: yeah, what were the first cr- criterion or the, were the discs you've had the longest?
1: Grand Illusion. I, I have just about all of them. Uh,
0: it's, it's that's a great one. I
1: have I, all the blues. rays was the best. Yeah, he, I have all the Blu-rays and uh, most of the DVDs, but not all, but Spine one.
2: Yeah, my first, uh, criterion was the old notorious DVD before Ooh. it went out of print. And then, then in the last, was it two years ago, Aaron? Mm-hmm. They, they re-released. So yeah, that would be my first. And then I think maybe my first Blu-ray was mm, maybe Brazil. Hmm. <clears throat> That's right. I don't. Know. I can't, maybe Brazil.
1: My first yeah. Blu-ray was Days of Heaven, which I which was also in that Australian pack. So now I have two copies. So, yeah.
2: I mean, I, you can't go wrong with that. So. I know. I, yeah.
0: I think the Criterion, I think the first DVD that I got was was My Man Godfrey. Ooh. Oh yeah. And That's a good one. And when it was initially released, they didn't put the famous Criterion sort of brand Snipe across the front. So mm-hmm. if you have the first releases of My Man Godfrey, it's one of the few, if only criterion releases that doesn't actually have their sort of logo and branding on it. So, uh, um, okay. Yeah. yeah. But I love their stuff. Recently I watched The Uninvited, the Lewis Allen. Movie. I love that. That's a fun one. I love that. Supernatural film with Ray Milan, which is really great. So
2: it's so the the whole relationship between Milan and, um, Hussey's characters, the sibling relationship is so bizarre <laughs> in
0: that movie. It, I love it. It, it is. You kind of wonder. Yeah,
2: you, you do wonder.
0: People that are brother and sister just happily living together and buying a house out in British Spook- countryside, and-
1: spooky house. And- a, lot, a lot of code movies are like that. You just it just doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. So yeah, I'll to revisit yeah. that one. I think you could show that to your daughter. I think it's safe. Well, the
0: non-criterion blu-ray that jumps out at me is uh scorpion releasing put out um it's a, just a truly gonzo kind of monster mashup called assignment terror okay on blu-ray and it's a paul nashe film who was who was the great spanish horror star of the late 60s and 70s and it's kind of his take on abbott and costello meet frankenstein so it's got <laughs> frankenstein's monster it's got the Wolfman, it's got a vampire, it's got the mummy, it's got Michael Rennie. Uh, okay. Day of the <laughs> earth stood still, sort of slumming it late in his career. I, lo- I love it. <laughs> and it is just bonkers. Um, it is like a crazy late sixties Spanish Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Oh, in, I'm sold <laughs> in Technicolor and it it's sold just, me again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This, so uh, this episode's
1: costing me a lot of money. <laughs>
0: yeah. So that was, that one's super fun to watch. And the fact that there are companies out there that are now unearthing these, these lost, incredibly obscure kind of genre gems like this movie mm-hmm. uh, and putting them out on Blu-ray to me is just uh, remarkable. I know that mill of the stone women, the Giorgio Ferroni film is coming up. Shortly, I think through Arrow, if I'm not mistaken, is a, has a new uh, restoration of it coming out in a couple months. It's another one that people should mm-hmm. should track down. Beautiful early 60s technicolor gothic horror film. So there, it, it is a great era yeah. for physical media. Yeah, <laughs> <And> <laughs> we I, are, and I would recommend everybody. Buy the Blu-rays mm-hmm. and hold on to them because most of these companies license these films for seven or 10 years at the most.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And if they
0: right. don't re-up the license, they go out of print. They go out. And there's, That's right. And there is no guarantee that somebody else is ever going to want to re-release an assignment terror or a lot of these obscure titles. So, right. you know, th- th- there is a method to the madness. Of spending all this money to acquire <laughs> well, the media because you have a beautiful, you know, HD 2K, 4K version of it now.
2: Right, mm-hmm. right. And, you know, there's, it seems like every other day there's a, you know, an article or someone's talking about it on Twitter or whatever about the, uh, the slow demise of physical media. And I, and, and in some respects, yes uh, you know especially you were talking earlier about you know a lot of new films they're they're really there's really no focus on putting them on physical because most people are going to watch them uh streaming or whatever but i think this is you know i feel like this is the last you know 5 to 7 years has been really great for just deep cuts getting a, a a home video release. Um and you know we have seen some you know concerning changes uh and kind of uncertain future for some labels. You know, I'm thinking right now of like you know Warner Archive and kind of what might be happening there. But you know we've it seems like, every, you know, every month we're getting this, you know, list of releases from all these labels and the films that are getting released are just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, And what are getting, you know, the films that are getting restored and ones that we've not heard of that, you know, some of the ones that you've been talking about on this episode. And so as, as kind of uh, concerning as the overall physical media landscape uh, where we might be headed on that i think in terms of the kind of films that we're interested in on this show and our listeners are interested in um there is a market for that and definitely labels are and labels are putting them out but that's important what you're saying about the licensing on these is if you see this movie that you're interested in you better grab it buy it yeah <laughs> because cause
1: it's, it's probably not going to be they're, they're not always streaming um
2: No, and some of these labels, you know, they get, they get the rights to it, but then they can only do a limited run. You know, Mm -hmm. I know with Twilight Time, which, you know, God bless them. Oh, RIP now. Yeah. I know. know, know. Nick Redman was a really
0: nice guy. He was just
2: such a nice guy. And, um, you know, they would get what? 3,000, 5,000 that they could put out on a, on a title. Yeah. um and Indicators then you know, kind of the same way um, exactly indicator you know uh, or they'll and twilight time would i know they did re-release a couple especially some of the horror titles that were so popular you know they would renew the license for that to put out mm-hmm. another you know three or five thousand title of, or copies um but yeah i mean that's kind of where we're at is if if and again, our, our listeners, they're all rabid collectors of this stuff. But, yeah. you know, if there's something that you love or a label you, you know, you love, support them and we'll keep getting this stuff released, you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I'll ask yeah, our but, listeners by the Deaf Crocodile stuff too. Um, and, yes,
0: absolutely. Hey, uh, um, I, I really appreciate that. And it's been great speaking with both of you, you know, and yeah, on behalf been of been Greg wonderful. as well. Thank you so much this for having us fun. on and happy yeah. to yeah. come back anytime. Absolutely. Love to have you,
1: Dennis. Have a great yeah. uh, rest of the day.
0: Yeah. You too. Have a great
2: All weekend. Right.
3: All right. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.